Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the North Fort Worth podcast. I'm your host, Josh Boyd, and I'm joined this afternoon by Dr. Scott Willingham. Welcome, Dr. Scott. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's, it's it. great for you to join us. If you didn't get to tune in yesterday, um, Dr. Willingham joined us for both of our services yesterday while Pastor Stephen was out, and um, you shared a pretty challenging message yesterday, actually, right along with our I Am series. How, how, did, how did that go yesterday? How do you feel things went yesterday? Well, I should ask you that. My wife <laughs> was not well enough uh, because she'd taken her Johnson & Johnson one-shot wonder shot that she wasn't well, well enough to come, but... She said there was a lot in there, but she there was, was encouraging. Other people were encouraging. I just want you and Dr. Lowry and your staff and, and your church. Well, really, I want the Lord to be glorified, but you tell me how you think it went. I, I I enjoyed researching. My wife said, you disappeared researching. I said, I love this. I love looking at scripture from that First Peter 3.15 perspective. Always right. be prepared to give an answer. I think there are a lot of questions out there, don't you, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really... Yesterday was a different approach, I think, than what we've taken with the I Am series so far, and more of, like you said, an, 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 uh, an apologetic approach to be ready. Um, that aspect of it is really important, and I, that there was not probably a better week for that yesterday. And I, you, you know, yesterday you you challenged Stephen that he he owed it to us to make that sermon up some uh, somehow to come back around to it. And oh, give I'm us not more. trouble that for that. But <laughs> I just feel like him unpacking the dialogue between. Thomas and Jesus, and then specifically Philip afterwards, you know, a theologian and a Bible teacher like like Stephen, I'd, I'd like to hear that message. Yeah. But I knew that the Lord was pulling me more towards just the phrase, just the teaching, and narrowing even in more on no man comes to the Father but through me. Because I know uh, theologically and philosophically, and, and even now in our culture, that chaps people's britches, Josh. Yeah. They don't like that phrase. They would have been fine if he said, I'm one way, I'm one truth, I'm one life. This said, works. Right. <laughs> but yeah. they did. So I narrowed in on what I think our culture is saying is almost reprehensible. <laughs> my wife said, audacious. I said, audacious. I'm sticking with my word that I used yesterday. It's, it's an audacious claim he made. Yeah. In the best sense of the word audacious, not in the worst sense. No doubt. One, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about today is you, you mentioned yesterday, um, you know, the, the um, theology of peanuts. Um, and you talked about the uh, the cartoon strip there. And we talked about, you know, Lucy's um, essay submission and how her essay was so great. She got a great, great feedback from from the teacher. And then she says, after a while, you learn what sells and you use that tagline there. And then you shared a couple of stats with us. Would you mind running those stats by us just one more time? Well, Barna research indicates, and this was a couple of years ago, so I don't know what it is now and we can find out, but just basically think of two out of three people don't believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. And then when you narrowed it in back then, and, and even now with millennials, you are one, it goes up higher, does it not? Sure. You know, almost three out of four millennials would say Abs- no absolute truth. And the shocking statement to me was uh, when they surveyed college students and college students said, not only that, they said, People who believe in absolute truth are dangerous. dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're going towards? It's yeah, a pretty absolutely. Shocking thing. And we live in a church bubble, don't we, Josh? Right. And we shouldn't. And some of us don't. Some of the people watch this podcast are going, are you kidding? I took, a, I took a break from work. I'm working with these folks all the time. I think they could join in and say, it's just like that. But yeah. now in retirement, I'm working um, with cities uh, and nonprofits doing strategic visioning. And I'm out there and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not pulling punches when I say a lot of people will react negatively to this narrow, more 
particularistic or narrow view that Jesus held and, and, and he lived up to, and I support, but it, they just don't like it. Yeah, no doubt. So what do you think maybe, what was the danger kind of, of, of these stats? And as a 21st century Christian, after, you know, learning what sells and this, you know, what sells becoming more and more popular and more and more even pervasive, even what, what is the danger that we face as, face as a church, um, as a Christian in the 21st century, where are we headed with this? That's a great question. I mean, I think of trajectory. I was guided in my master's degree in counseling uh, to think of trajectory, you know, work with someone over time and see where they're going. Ask them to think about this over time. And Josh, I think you'd be a good person to ask that back to. And so I will in just a second. But as we think about the trajectory of the thought that remember Immanuel Kant, all, you know, only what that you can't know the thing of it yourself. You can't know truth except as you experience it. Imagine billions of people living out the view that there's no truth outside myself. Right. And if we take that to its logical conclusion, we really could do horrible things to babies. You know, I think today I was reading in the news that um, some of the Ivy League schools or particular Ivy League school was saying they're supporting uh, families that are polyarchy. Is that the right word there? They're just multiple people being parental parts right. of the family. And uh, so you could have a family group of four or five parents that one parent moves in and out. How do you think that would affect parenting? But if that's what they believe is right, that's right. Uh, So the notion that what I believe is right, no matter what you say, to its logical conclusion means that I I could do horrible things to small children, and that's right for me. You say, well, that's extreme. It's not extreme. It's coming into focus. Josh, how would, what do you think about some of those things I've just said, you know, as you look at the trajectory of our world? Yeah, I think the the scariest thing that we've talked about so far is the fact that those statistics were two years old that you mentioned earlier. Um, and, and there's, I mean, there's, I'm, I can say with 100% certainty that those statistics are worse today um, in 2021, especially after people have spent 12 months with themselves at home. Um, they're, they're, those thoughts are much worse. You know, the thoughts about absolute truth, the thought about uh, people who believe in absolute truth, religious people, people that the Jesus freaks, right? They're dangerous. I think those stats have risen um, exponentially. And, you know, I, I, in college, the, the idea of thinking for yourself, even, um, at, a, I went, I went to a private religious school and even there, the idea that, um, um, uh, your interpretation of things is important, right? And, you know, your, your idea of what the truth is, is important and it, and it is, but that doesn't change the truth. The truth doesn't change based upon your reaction with the truth, your encounter with the truth. The truth does not change. And that's, that's a hard thing to, to wrap our brains around. I think we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute, but. Well, you if, just pointed out something that even family members I have say, you know, there's so many interpretations and they use as Christians, these are followers of Jesus that use the notion that there's so many interpretations of scripture to mean that it's kind of relative. They're sure. creeping into relativism, aren't they, Josh? Yeah, without undermining the scripture, but they are undermining the scripture. And what I said yesterday in one of the sermons, I don't know if I said it both, but Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. Dr. Jim Dennison, my philosophy religion professor, said that then, he says it now, but you know, and what I argue back or contend is, yeah, there are some things we not really sure of, you know, mid-tribulation or whether there's a tribulation, things about the end times. Revelation is intended to be a pretty crazy book. And those people that narrow it down and fight over it, and people that watch us narrow it down and fight over it, I think there, maybe there are a lot of room, there's intended to be some room maybe in Revelation, but, but 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the yeah. Father except through me. That's really not that hard to interpret. That's crystal clear. Right. And most of the scripture is. So relativism is even creeping in the church. Oh, you can interpret that when you just alluded to it. And it's great that you did, because it may be more real for a lot of our listeners than than you know anything. But, yeah, but absolutely. We, the Bible's not that hard to understand. And in today's world, uh, because I have an extended family member that just doesn't want to look at the scriptures in light of what I just said, you can find out what it meant and then apply it to your life. Right. Isn't it true? There's a lot of resources out there and there's some dangerous, horrible ones, but there's some great resources online for you to find out what the Bible meant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the most important thing that I think that I have ever learned about, you know, scripture and my, my faith journey and my knowledge of uh, Christ is that I'll never know everything. Um, and that's a really comforting thing to me because I, I don't, I don't want to know everything. Um, I'm scared of what, <laughs> what I don't think we're, we're able to comprehend such knowledge, you know, and you know, this, this huge long faith journey that will be on the rest of our lives as believers. Um, there is never an end to that other than death and, um, eternal, you know, relation with, with Christ fellowship in heaven with, with, with our creator. Um, and that's a comforting thing too, but I think it's called a journey for a reason. And Stephen, a few weeks ago, um, alluded to the, the life as a Christian, as a, a long journey hand in hand with a father who loves his children very much. And that was such a, such a simple analogy, really. Um, mm, it's but good, it's good. what, what a truthful statement, you know, um, as going we, back to what I reflected upon about the sermon, I thought again sure. that maybe if I had to do this over, I'd unpack a lot more that idea of abiding. My wife said that was an aha for her. That if you look at this passage in light of that phrase, that that thought of abiding in John 14 and 15, what you really hear is our compassionate Savior saying, I, I, "I'm willing to die to bring you to a place of abiding with the Father." And if you think of that kind of compassionate heart, I wish I'd have said it this way yesterday, but you think about that kind of compassionate heart and you think about people that are skeptical or atheistic or arguing or a question that maybe is penetrating for me and for believers in Jesus is, are we living in such a way that we're communicating that brokenness yeah. that we ourselves are brokenhearted about lostness and lost people and people in pain and suffering, and that we ourselves want people more than anything not to come to the church and know the church or not to come and give to the church or to take from the church, but to come to the Father. Yeah. And as Stephen said, to walk hand in hand and to abide in Him. And, and when I saw that, and I did that Greek work, and I saw that I, it colored, and it's going to continue to color my understanding of this I am, that He is saying, I am the way for you to abide in the Father. I'm the way for you to know the truth in the Father, and I'm for, I'm the way for you to have the life in the Father. He, and if you like, if if we can talk Stephen and do this sermon someday, <laughs> I think he'll do a great job. But we can do a little bit right now. Yeah, that seems to be the 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 bookends. Thomas, we don't know, and Philip, we don't we don't quite get it. And the frustration we hear in Jesus's voice is, "Are you serious? You haven't seen the Father in me." It's almost a brokenheartedness with Philip. Right. Like, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just went off a little bit there. No, that's okay. If I can maybe get us um, focused on the sermon from yesterday and really unpack one thing further that we we, we really wanted to talk about, um, you know, you and I talked briefly before 
um, you know, earlier today before we got online together, one thing that we wanted to talk about was how, how do we go on to defend this question that is Jesus really the only way to God? And how do, how do we unpack that a little more and maybe in different ways than, than what we did yesterday? I know we wanted to talk about a few different things today, but. Well, for one thing, we could delve a little deeper into pluralism, and I'd like to do that for a moment. Then I'd like sure. to just talk about the cross. But first, thinking about pluralism a little bit and, and the fallacies that come with the argument that many roads lead to God. Uh, yesterday, I said, uh, I should have said it this way. Let me say it now. I encourage anyone that feels that way to do a study of religions, an objective study. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Abdi Murray's grand central question, answering the critical concerns of, of the worldviews. <clears throat> Please hear those questions real quickly. Uh, his four questions he asks of each of the worldviews, um, pantheism, secular humanism, uh, uh, Christianity, and uh, Islam. These are the four questions. What explains existence? I mean, how did we get here? Creation. Um, and that's a huge question for everyone is, how did this world come to be? Number two, and by the way, what we're asking is not how the world came to be, but how does this world religion explain it? And you'll see that uh, the worldviews don't really compare. Uh, in can they more contrast to Christianity? The second question: Is there objective purpose and value to human existence? In other words, why are we here? What is our purpose? Huge question that Christians and uh, and in, in followers of any worldview need to look at their tenets and see what it teaches. Number three: What accounts for the human condition? What do we do about sin, evil, and suffering? This is huge. <clears throat> in light of the last 12 months, what we've seen in terms of human suffering and and, and tension and, and rioting and, and political um, selling, you know, if you will. Uh, number four, is there a better life or salvation from the present state? Is there a better life beyond this life? And, it, you know, often when I, Josh, when I teach John 14, I talk about heaven more than I did yesterday. Heaven is a universal longing. Sure. People long for it. They long for life after this life. Only people, I guess, that would really have such a perfect, easy you know, life would not long for life after this life. And I don't know of anybody that really hasn't encountered some suffering. So when you look at these four questions, it kind of helps us to see they're a little bit of a problem with their argument that they're all the same. But let's suppose we do. Well, then we could look at a couple of fallacies uh, when it comes to these questions. One is, sounds a little bit complex, but it's really not. Argument, the argument ad hominem. That argument basically means uh, ad hominem. The phrase just means appealing to the feelings or prejudices rather than the argument. The, an argument ad hominem, hominem says, hey, Scott Willingham, you're not a good person. I'll attack you. We see this a lot in our world, and we've seen it a lot in politics. Uh, today, in the last year or two, really recently, we attack the person viciously. That's an argument ad hominem. It's a, it's a fallacy. Now, the way I would use that in light of pluralism is some people say that to Christians and to Jesus mm. saying he's the narrow only way. Right. That's that's uh, that's horrible. I alluded to yesterday with a couple of illustrations. But let's just suppose, Josh, you and I know a person, a doctor who's discovered um, the, vac the the cure for cancer. Uh, this person has the cure for cancer. Moreover, that, that this person that we're talking about, let's just say is Dr. Johnson. 
Dr. Johnson's one of the worst persons you and I have ever met, but he works over Cook's Hospital and he lives in Fort Worth and we know him, you and I know him. But man, he's arrogant. He is just horrible to be around. He's abusive to his staff and nurses in the hospital. He's even abusive to patients. He's just one of the worst persons you could imagine being around. But So would could we still argue, though, he's not a good doctor, even though he's not a good person, if he's designed, created, and has available the cure for cancer? So the argument here is just basically saying it's a fallacious argument to say there is no cure for cancer because Dr. Johnson's a jerk. Hmm. And I think this pluralistic argument kind of goes like that a little bit. It, it tends to attack us for being narrow-minded and being being called narrow-minded or let's just say it jerks. Uh, and because we say that, what are they doing? They're taking the argument away from the issue. The real issue is, is Jesus truly the way, the truth and the life, or is he not? Right. And so they're kind of attacking us a little bit by saying you're narrow, you're bigoted, you're a fundamentalist, you're right. I don't want to do anything to do with Christianity because I've had negative experiences with Christians. Yeah, that's part of it. But 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 this is an illustration of the negative experience. I believe which one sounds back to Lucy. I love that you asked that first. Which one sells better? I believe that everyone, if they're sincere and tolerant, will go to heaven. Well, that sells. Mm-hmm. versus what Scott Willingham believes is only those who put their faith in, in Jesus Christ will get to heaven because he said that that is the way to the compassionate father. And it's a compassionate way to the father. It's available. It's it's reasonable. Well, they'd say, no, let's attack. Because that makes you dangerous. <laughs> so you're right. It attacks Christianity on our behavior, right. but it attacks Christianity on our behavior through our argument. And it takes the issue. So it's it's really takes away from the argument. The second argument is called the genetic fallacy. This is a little more complex, but in ways we kind of get it. Some say this narrow view comes from being a Christian and you're a Christian because of where you were born. If you'd have been born in Pakistan, you'd most likely be a Muslim. You're born in Texas, so you're most likely a Christian. So uh, it, it again to be a, a textbook example of what's called genetic fallacy. It's trying to invalidate the position by criticizing the way a person uh, came to hold that position. Sure. So I grew up in Texas. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family. I came to hold this family, this position because of my family. My beliefs depend upon where and when I was born with no relevance to the truth of my beliefs. So, uh, you know, if you've been born in Greece, you, you might have been been a different kind of, of believer. Well, this, uh, once again, pluralism pulls the rug from this. Uh, and by the way, back to the previous argument, ad, ad, argument ad hominem, um, it kind of double, it's a double-edged sword for those that hold to it because you're actually being the same kind of person arguing that a Christian is narrow. You're, you're kind of coming back at them with that same arrogant uh, attitude. Well, this fallacy also works along that way because you could argue that someone's, you know, has reached this because of where they were born. Maybe you were born into an atheistic family. Maybe your condition drove you, but that that's, a, we don't run into this fallacy as much, but I wanted to throw it out there. The genetic fallacy is a part of pluralism too. We can set those both aside by saying this. It's not that I was born, by the way, my testimony is a lot different. When I went to uh, my master's degree, the, the 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 seminary Southwestern at the time had courses that required really actually pulled the roots. I know this sounds 
surprising to some people, but it pulled <laughs> the roots out of your belief and made you plant them again. That mm. made me deal with the, whether the scripture is true or not for myself, whether I believe the gospel is true for myself. It was a three and a half year process. It was a guided process. Uh, and my believers were Christians. I'll admit that. But it was it was pretty, uh, you know, I, I can relate to when Billy Graham knelt by the tree and 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 he had doubts about the veracity of Scripture. But he said, God, I, I believe and help my unbelief, so to speak. But what I'm saying is uh, my journey was not uh, just conditioned to say you must believe, you must believe, you must believe. My journey has been one of searching and finding out, is this really true? Not because I was raised in a Christian sure. family, because my family's kind of pseudo Christian when I was a kid. But anyway, the genetic fallacy, you're raised and conditioned. It just takes your attention off the real argument. And certainly the argument ad hominem takes your uh, eyes off of. So that's a couple things about pluralism. Uh, pluralism has uh, some real challenges for Christians. Um, but I think the answer is to just go, to, to indeed go and study these world religions with a guide like Abdu Murray or uh, others and just right. say, what are the questions I'd ask? What are you thought? What are your thoughts about what I just said? There were pluralism. Just looking at these fallacies briefly to say, most of them are geared to do what you know they do. Josh, take your attention off the real question and attack you. Right, and I think one of the most important things to to note here, if if you're listening, is to to really break that question down there that we talked about with the the genetic, you know, identity there, and what do you believe? What what is your belief? And you know, I, I've heard it said many times that uh, God doesn't have grandchildren or n- nieces or nephews. God has children, and uh, you don't inherit faith. And I love that you said pseudo-Christian uh, to describe your family a minute ago, because I think that's something we all relate to, especially um, in the proximity of where we live um, here in our country. You know, it seems like Christianity is just uh, something inherited or it's something passed down, and that's not it's not true. Um, well, I need to be careful, and some of my family members join in. I, I don't mean that my mom and dad aren't aren't, sure, aren't sure, believers. Sure. My, it really, I should be specific. My dad had walked away from the church during the time I was forming faith issues, so it wasn't like a real Christ-centered family at the time. My dad later returned to that, and my mom was always there, and my younger sister is a pastor's wife. But it's just during this really important time in my life, I don't remember it being a Bible-centered, Christ-centered family, which sure. it became later, but uh, it, that shaped me. That yeah. shaped me to want to really study and see for myself. And it's kind of, I'm a I'm that way anyway, Josh. I think you are too. We kind of connect as apologists over this analytical way of thinking. Right. And it, there's something to do with the, the, your your own personal processing there and what's, you know, what happens in your in your personal belief, in your personal faith, in your personal journey, that kind of thing. And if you're listening today and you, you know, have heard, you know, us break down pluralism here, you know, you will realize that we didn't talk much about uh, moral relativism. And that's because we did that a lot yesterday. And you, you talked mm-hmm. a lot yesterday about moral relativism. And so if you're listening today and you didn't catch yesterday's sermon, go back and listen to yesterday's sermon, either hour. You did a great job, Dr. Willingham, kind of unpacking moral relativism and we talked about that for a while yesterday and but um, you know you alluded to these four questions and we didn't get to really unpack that much yesterday so that's what we really wanted to talk about today um, so these these two kind of coupled together you get a really solid breakdown of uh, the two moral conflicts there I guess really that go on but as we as we move over did you have any other questions from yesterday anything we needed to unpack any further the one thing I wanted to share uh, I didn't share it in the second sermon but the first sermon I did and um, it's humorous, but I want to tell it again. There's a traveler who he and his wife stopped in 
in the deep south. It real this this story relates to more relativism, but he stopped in the deep south and uh, he was getting gas and he looked over and saw a barn and and the barn had a bunch of bullseyes and he walked over closer and saw that there was a bullet right in the middle of every circle and so went back to the gas attendant and said who made these bullet holes and the guy spit out his tobacco said back on said i did <laughs> and an old man spit out his tobacco and said they said that he, he says i've got to hand it to you you're a great shot the traveler said and he said uh not really i shoot the bullet holes first and then i paint the target around the holes well i think all of us can relate to that the danger of that is in our lives is we really end up with this barn full of holes instead of a life well lived. We just shoot ourselves in the foot, as we'd say. Another thing I used to tell, uh, and I told it one time to a church that I went to right out of seminary. Uh, I felt like this leader would hear it and receive it, but I, I told him about Blue Cheese, Texas. I didn't tell this yesterday, but I love this. Blue <laughs> Cheese, Texas is a town in Texas that their primary belief is that the moon is made out of blue cheese. They absolutely believe it. You can't live there unless you believe it. And uh, they even kind of do a new citizen orientation. You've got to believe the blue moon is blue cheese, Josh. Well, the problem is one day, to their surprise, uh, uh, Neil Armstrong moves to town. And he happens to have been there. And people crucified him. You'd think that they said, we're going to change our views. We're going to. Yeah, but for them, their experience of believing that moon is blue cheese would not be controverted even in the midst of Neil Armstrong coming to town and living there. I, I think that's a little bit of who we are uh, as folks. Uh, we, we tend to argue wow. uh, in, in incessantly against what is true. My hope would be that as we talk about this in this podcast, uh, as we talk about it in, the, in the, our pulpits, that we call people to use the word truth to call people to believe the word truth. When I told this to this leader in the church, he looked at me and he got the message. I said, I feel like I'm Neil Armstrong. I've come to your church, been preaching the Bible, but y'all believe, and this is a part of East Texas, and y'all believe more East Texas values than you believe in the scriptures. Well, may that never be said of me or you, Josh, but it's dangerous. May, may I not be a Texas Christian, maybe a devout follower of Jesus Christ who follows the way, the truth, and the life. I who happens feel, to live in Texas. <laughs> who happens to live in Texas or Fort Worth. So one question I had for you, though, uh, in, in light of all this, how are we doing on time? You know, we're good. Got all the we're time good. in the world. OK, well, then I wanted to throw in one more thing. So if you were asking me, how do we know Jesus is the only way to God? I would go back to the, the cross. I'd go to question number three in, in uh, Grand Central question. What accounts for the human condition? In the last year, we've seen a lot of sin, a lot of bitterness, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of aloneness, a lot of tension. It's been a tough year. I think you've alluded to it. Yeah. So there's no solution to the problem of sin apart from the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Romans 3.23 teaches all of sin. But my way of reading the Sermon on the Mount, especially early parts, is when Jesus said, you've heard it say, but I say, Every time, Josh, if you notice, he takes it from the outward way of living a righteous life to the inward way of knowing you're a sinner. Yeah. I mean, you can't read the Sermon on the Mount without coming away with, man, I'm really <laughs> a sinner. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, lusting in your heart after a woman. I mean, that's just really strong. So it's crystal clear from the Bible that people, me, all of us are sinful, morally bankrupt before a holy God in need of forgiveness. So as you look at pluralist, pluralistically, as you look at different worldviews, ask them how they deal with the sin problem. 
For me, I look at the scripture and I see Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as God's solution to the problem of our separation from God. So apart from the cross, uh, there's just no provision for man's sin, for man's atonement and reconciliation. So I think that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is effective. The, the, The theological word you heard and I've heard is efficacious, that it works. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way, Josh, and audience. He was crucified because he claimed to be God's anointed, God's son. He claimed to be God's son, and he was crucified for claiming to be through the I Ams. This ties in with the I Ams. We take the I Ams and his claim to be God, and they knew he's claimed to be God, the very son of God. How did that get justified? How did that get vindicated? God the Father raising Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity, from the dead, vindicates, listen, publicly, those who allegedly blasphemously claimed uh, against him for which he was crucified. Saying that again in a different way. When the father raises him, he raises him from the, he raises him from the dead saying, this man is righteous and pure and deserving of our worship. So the blasphemes that were cast against him are now vindicated. He is the son of God. How do we know? He's resurrected. Topic for another day for you and me sure. uh, to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which maybe we can even get Mike Lacone in here. He's my friend. We can get him to do a three-way with us from Atlanta. But just when you look at the sin problem, the question I have for anyone listening to this, can you find a better solution? Can you find a more beautiful solution? Thomas Watson of yesteryear said he argued that the words of Jesus could not be improved upon. He asked people in that day, it's a yesteryear, I get it, but he asked people to come up with better words, come up with a better life, come up with a better person. To me, it'd be hard to imagine a more beautiful, better person. In fact, the book of John says that if everything he had done and said had been, the books of the world couldn't contain it. Here's a beautiful person that lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross to atone for our sins, it sure. gets back to Jesus. And I would say to anybody here that's really asking, how do I share Christ with my f- friend who maybe is a is a pluralistically thinking person or a moral relativist, I'd say, just cling to Jesus. You know, read the book, words of Jesus with them. Let that work. Now, uh, Josh, if time allows, I wanted to ask you, as you think about these things from your perspective, and your age and, and your background, do you have anything you would share about this one way to Jesus? Sure. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I have a unique perspective anyway, because I'm a millennial and being a Christian is not popular in millennial congregations, millennial crowds, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm a young millennial. And uh, so I, I've, I have a lot of tendencies that, um, that fluctuate between Gen Z and the millennial generation and, I've told people for a long time since, you know, studies about Gen Z started, I've told people that, you know, the the tail end of the millennial crew, the in-between generation and the Gen Z uh, students, really they're students now, they're, you know, in college, um, finishing up high school, that whole generation. They're the most inclusive generation that's ever walked the planet. And you can take that word inclusive however you want to. Um, and inclusive with sexual identity, inclusive with um, their religious wow. identity, wow. inclusive in whatever form or fashion you want to take the word. They are inclusive. And everyone gets a voice. Everyone gets a, if you want to do this, you get to do that. And that that is the 
I think that goes to prove the stats that we talked about earlier about absolute truth, where there is no absolute, you know, with, with these generations, there is no absolute truth because it's whatever you want it to be. It's whatever you see it fit to be. And when I told Stephen before I got hired here in, in a lunch interview that I had with him, that once Gen Z figures out that the gospel is the most inclusive philosophical treatise that has ever been known to man. Oh, win. good insight. Excellent. Win. We win. win. Um, when, when, when Gen Z and young millennials, people my age figure out that there is no more inclusive of a belief than the gospel of Jesus Christ, we win. <laughs> there, there, there is a, a huge battle that is won there when we start saying the cure for all this inclusivity, wherever, whatever branch you want to take off, Jesus accepts you as that. And not only that, but he recognizes, and I'll get into this here in a minute. And I, I wanted to, to mention the way that I want to answer this question, I think, and I'll piggyback off of a lot of what Dr. Ravi, Ravi Zacharias says with this. And, you know, the industry of pornography is besides human trafficking, um, is the largest industry in the world, um, which saddens and hurts my heart. Um, it makes billions, uh, with supposedly the most beautiful human beings of the earth while in conjunction with that stirs up the ugliest, passions and desires capable within the human heart and passions that really no human being can fulfill passions um, that take away the possibility of the impact of a person and puts in its place a feeling a desire any any an emotional a mental um, void that takes the place as a supreme pursuit and that's a huge abstract concept but to just make it really simple, it puts in us something, a hunger that can never be filled. And that's one example. I used pornography as one example, but all of this means no person can satisfy that. You can't find satisfaction in that void, in that hunger, in that desire, in that passion. And that's man. That's me. That's our desire. That's our humanness. That's our human heart at play there. And for me, Jesus is the only way because he gives us this answer. He tells us that's exactly how it is. You want to figure out life as a human? You have evil desires and sinful nature that lives within your heart, no matter your background, no matter your genealogy, no matter your religion, no matter your belief about eternity, no matter your belief about sin. In the very inner beings of ourself, we are self-seeking and we desire self beyond anything else. The heart is sinful and desperately wicked, <laughs> as Jesus puts it. That's the truth. And there's no other religion or worldview that tells you that. And Jesus not only explains that very clearly for us, but offers us a way out. You know, we want to talk about inclusivity. That's it. That's, it's the most inclusive message of all time. And I think once you look at it that way, once people my age and uh, Gen Z see it that way, there's no question. There's The argument doesn't exist anymore. It's fallacy. You know, as we talked about earlier, the, the argument's void. It doesn't exist. It's a really long answer to that question, but... No, it's good. Also, it goes back to, you know, Manuel Kant saying, uh, I sensed it in myself, and, and, and you know, that's the sensory experience that is off the chart and, and, and results in, in death and destruction for people. It's denigrating to women it's destroying to your own life. It destroys marriages. 
And, and yet out of that, we see that we can know the thing in itself that Immanuel Kant said we can't know. We can know Jesus. We can know his truth. And Jesus comes to the person that's struggling with pornography and says, I'm the way for you out of this. I'm the truth about the horrible nature of this and the truth about the atonement through the cross that comes to the, that can come to you right now in this moment and for the following years of your life. And I'm the life. This is not life. I bring you life. That's just really good. That, that, that illustrates John 14, 6 in my mind in a lot of different ways than I would have thought about it. Sure. And I, I think we can kind of supplement that really. And I, I love, I've preached a, a few different times on um, Matthew 26, um, when Jesus is approached in the garden. And this is the only gospel where this is explained quite in this way. But when Judas approaches Jesus in Matthew 26, Jesus answers in the very moment of Judas's betrayal, and his selling out of Jesus. When we talk about what sells, um, in his very mm. moment of betrayal, in, in betraying Jesus, betraying the the very beginnings of a belief that would ra- that would radically change the world, Jesus looks at Judas and says, "Friend, uh, do what you came to do." And in the very moment of Judas's betrayal, Jesus chooses to call him friend. Mm. And I like to think that that Jesus does the same thing to me. And mm. uh, wow, it's good in the very midst of, you know, my betrayal, my separation from God, the very choice that separates me from God, Jesus actively chose to accept me <laughs> in, in spite of that betrayal. It makes that, that brings, that emotionally breaks me every time that I look at scripture that way. Um, and, and I think there is absolute power in understanding that that's how, um, intimately Jesus views his creation, his people, the ones that he, he chose to die for. Um, that, that is the human, uh, there's a lot of people that I think that get hung up on the human concept of choice and how, you know, how can there be a God when we're allowed to choose? How does he know everything? Jesus chose the cross and chose to, uh, that, that <laughs> it shouldn't be a question. <laughs> it shouldn't be an argument after that. But anyway, that's way too long of an answer, I think, for, for that question. Great answer. Thanks for having me today, my brother. Yeah, absolutely. It was doing, great. I encourage you to keep doing. This is rich. This is uh, helpful for those of us. I've joined you uh, on this podcast a time or two, and I'm going to keep doing it. I'm always blessed. We're grateful for that. Yeah, we, Stephen and I really enjoy putting together the podcast every week, and we love having guests. It's such a blessing to have you with us today, and hopefully, like you said, we can get back together soon and maybe do a part two uh, and maybe a part three after that. Who knows? We'll have to make it hey, a, brother. Be a series. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today. I'll, I'll do a wrap up here in a moment, but thanks for joining us on the call. I really appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Well, if you're still listening, we really appreciate you joining us today. Um, and for really kind of a special episode of our podcast, we don't normally go this long, but this is a really unique topic. I think it's something we could really, um, go, uh, at links, talk for links at a time about, and, uh, hopefully, uh, Dr. Willingham will join us um, for a- another episode, uh, maybe a part two of what we talked about today. But um, we hope that this week is uh, proving to be a blessing to you. Um, enjoy the rain today um, and be safe this week um, and all of your travels. We know a lot of people were on spring break last week. Some are on spring break this week, but enjoy whatever the week has in store for you. We're praying for you this week. Um, we can't wait to see you back this Wednesday for a Bible study with Pastor Stephen at 630. Um, our student activities and kids activities both going on at 630 in their relative room 
rooms and spaces as well. And then we'll see you back again next Sunday for 9 and 11 a.m. for our traditional and contemporary worship. And don't forget, next week is Easter. We've got a Monday-Thursday service coming up next Thursday, and as well as both of our Easter gatherings on uh, Sunday, April the 4th. Um, be looking for, for more info on those. Um, coming out this week in circulation. Um, we'll also uh, be sending out info about our Annie Armstrong Easter emphasis, uh, their Easter offering that we've got going on. But lots of things happening in the life of our church. We're excited to tell you about them. We're excited to see you uh, both Wednesday and this Sunday. But have a great afternoon. Have a great rest of your week. Mm-hmm.